How should God's people live when the wicked so often succeed and the righteous so often suffer? How should we live when the wicked are so often actually praised for their wickedness while the righteous are punished for their righteousness? The wicked appear among us in different forms, don't they? Uh, Some are identity thieves and internet scam artists who remain hidden from view. Some are government bureaucrats who conceal the truth to protect a narrative or their positions. Some are cons who prey upon the elderly, fears of the homebound. Some are abortion providers who receive funding for the murder of the innocent. Some are human traffickers who exploit and enslave women and children. Some are psychologists who, under the guise of affirmation and care, call what is evil good. Some are bosses who cut corners and reduce the quality of the product or the project for a profit. Some are co-workers who fiddle the day away and fraudulently take credit for the hard work of others. Some are family members who lie and steal from vulnerable relatives. The list could go on. You, You probably have examples of the prosperity and the deeds of the wicked from your own daily life. And too often it seems like the wicked seem to get away with it. The righteous, on the other hand, the people of God, are often punished for living out their faith, living out righteousness, for calling for justice and truth. For example, the righteous are mocked when they announce the truth that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that it's impossible for two men or two women to conceive. The righteous are falsely accused when they point out that the murder of children in the womb is not health care. The righteous are called bigots when they request that we should not lie, but live in the reality of who God has made us as male and female. The righteous are shamed for laboring for the integrity of the product or the project, though the profit margin decreases. The righteous are persecuted. Think about our brothers and sisters around the world in countries who are hostile to the gospel. They are persecuted for proclaiming the freeing news, the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and that salvation is found in no other name. How should we live? How should the people of God live in an upside-down world like this? I don't know if you've thought about this, but some of the songs that we sing this time of year, some of the Christmas carols that we sing, actually bring out these realities of living in an upside-down world. I, I read through... Uh, probably 10 in our hymnal. I found five examples, but let me just give you one. One. Consider this verse. Verse 3 from I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, which is 98 in our hymnals, number 98. Here's verse 3. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Sometimes the hatred of the wicked is strong and it mocks the song of the righteous, mocks their lives and leads them to suffer. Psalm 37, the psalm that we're looking at today, helps us to live in an upside-down world. 
in a world where the wicked succeed and the righteous suffer. The Psalms leading up to Psalm 37 have been telling the story of David as God's suffering servant. Psalm 35 described the situation where David was fleeing from his enemies. Psalm 36 was David's declaration. He was kind of looking around and he declared that the steadfast love of the Lord was the anchor of his soul amid the anger of the wicked that he saw. And as we look at Psalm 37 now, we see David actually counseling believers who are undergoing the same suffering that he went through. They too are facing the anger and the affliction of the wicked. And David is saying to them, do not respond to evil with evil. Overcome evil with good and trust the Lord to give you your reward. David, he has structured this psalm in a particular way. It's an alphabetical acrostic. That means that every two verses or so, David deploys a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet to begin that kind of verse. Uh, That would be a little bit like me writing a poem with the first verse beginning with the letter A, and then the second verse beginning with the letter B, and the third verse with the letter C, and, and so on, until the poem is complete. And this structure, this alphabetical acrostic, actually communicates something. It's David's way of saying, here is the whole of my wisdom on this matter. I've had to face this situation and live. David, what is he saying? What is he saying when the wicked succeed and the righteous suffer? What's David's wisdom on this matter? It's simply this. Rest from revenge and take refuge in the Lord. For in due time, you will receive your reward. That's the teaching of this text. And beloved, that's the sermon in a sentence. Rest from revenge and take refuge in the Lord, for in due time you will receive your reward. There should be a full outline provided there for you, Lord willing, in the bulletin. That may help you to follow along, but let's begin with our first point, where we see David counsel us to rest from revenge. Follow along now as I read Psalm 37, verses 1 to 9. Of David... Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. These verses contain prohibitions against sin, prods to righteousness, and promises of the Lord's deliverance. And all told, they issue a calming call for the righteous to rest from seeking revenge. Revenge, returning evil for evil, It's likely the temptation that you face when someone strikes out at you. And so in rapid-fire succession, David opens this psalm with admonitions against anger and revenge. You see that phrase there in verse 1? Fret not yourself because of evildoers. 
It's a way of saying, don't let evildoers burn you up inside. Don't let them get to you like that. Don't get agitated and angry because of the evildoers. This happens to you, doesn't it? Someone commits some wrong, perhaps against you, and they prosper from it, and it drives you nuts. It burns you up on the inside. But what does James 1.20 say? James tells us, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's not productive. It doesn't produce what God wants from you. David warns against it again there in verse 7, but this time he says, Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Their prosperity, that can make you angry and envious. That can burn you up inside. You can silently seethe when you see something like that happening. The evildoers, they don't just get away with it. They seem to advance because of it and it drives you nuts. It's maddening. Why do they get to violate God's principles of righteousness and keep right on going, unscathed? David, he warns about anger a third time. There in verse 8. Look at it. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Three times David's warned against it. He must want us to pay attention to it. He must know the Holy Spirit certainly inspiring this all must know that we will struggle with it. Here's one reason why you can't let the wickedness of the world burn you up inside. When you're burning up and boiling on the inside, you're probably already sinning. And your sin is about to spill out. Unchecked fretting will lead to wicked fury. Here's the danger that David's warning against. You're about to become like those who just burned you up inside. If you act in revenge, you're going to become like those you resent. Not only that, but worse, you're going to put yourself in God's place in the midst of it. Justice comes from the judge's throne, not from you. So you can't climb up on his throne and take matters into your own hand and execute justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I shall repay. Deuteronomy 32, 35, Romans 12, 19, Hebrews 10, 30, they all teach the same thing. Leave the wrong to the wrath of the Lord. This is so practical, right? When you're burning up on the inside, don't immediately respond. Don't act in haste. Don't act on your impulse. We could put it in the language of the text that our brother Curtis is going to preach from tonight. Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Do not give way to sinful anger. Take a rest. Do not seek revenge. David says, put off anger and pursue righteousness. When evildoers prosper, that doesn't mean you should be passive. You don't face depravity with a do-nothing attitude. David gives you something to do. David prods you to righteousness. He essentially works out what Paul says when he, what Paul means when he says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Look, look at verse 3. Trust in the Lord Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Here you're called to trust the Lord to vindicate you. To trust the Lord to preserve you and protect you. Trust the Lord to right the wrong and bring justice. And you're also called to do good. Now, doing good might just mean doing the next thing. Keep doing your duty. 
Going back to providing for your family. Go back to folding the laundry and making dinner. Go back to writing the software program. Go back to data analysis or whatever it might be that the Lord has for you as your duty. Whatever earthly responsibilities the Lord has for you, you just need to keep going. Putting one foot in front of the other. Keep doing the good that the Lord has for you to do. You may also have to think through the question, what does God command me and require of me in this moment? What is the righteous response to to this unrighteousness that I am facing? Among other things, God commands you to always speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.25. God commands you to do honest work with your hands, Ephesians 4.28. God commands you to be kind, tenderhearted, compassionate, Ephesians 4.32. God may command you to seek earthly justice. That actually is doing good. Uh, Though you may not unlawfully seek revenge, taking matters into your own hands, becoming the judge and executioner, though you may not unlawfully do that, you may lawfully bring the wrong to the attention of the proper authorities. And children, let me just say a word to you on, on this matter. When your brother or sister reviles you or attacks you, the righteous response is to take those matters to the proper authorities in your lives, to rest from revenge and hand it over to your parents. You do not attack back. You rest from revenge and you bring it to your parents. Outside of the home, friends, if a crime has been committed against you or against someone else, you may take those crimes to officers of the law. That's part of the reason that God has given us governing authorities, to actually punish evildoers. Paul literally says in Romans 13.4 that the governing authority is the servant of God, an avenger. Governing authorities are to be an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Doing good may involve bringing evil to the attention of the officers of the law. Doing good certainly involves bringing the matter to the Lord in prayer. After all, is he not the proper authority over all? Christian, you can and should cry out to God about the evil that you see all around you. You you can plead with him to curb the wickedness that you're seeing and experiencing. Praying does much good. In prayer, you're rolling your burdens and casting your cares upon the Lord. You're not only doing good, but you're also befriending faithfulness. The idea there in verse 3, you see that phrase, befriend faithfulness? The idea there is that you should draw near to faithfulness and even feed on faithfulness. Give more attention to faithfulness than to unfaithfulness. If unfaithfulness is going to eat up your soul, then to avoid spiritually starving yourself, you're going to need to feed on faithfulness. You're going to especially need to feed on the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. That's why you don't have to respond in revenge. You can trust that your sovereign and faithful God will act. David says it over and over again. That idea of befriending faithfulness is really further explained with the prods to righteousness in verses 4 and 5. Right, Delighting yourself in the Lord and committing your way to the Lord are, are parallel statements to what has gone before. When the wicked oppose you, repose in God. When the wicked drain you, delight yourself in the Lord. When the wicked try to knock you off your way, recommit your way. To the Lord. Your soul is going to be restless until you pursue rest in the Lord. Rest from revenge. 
Rejoice in the Lord and remember that he will deliver you. Amid these prods to righteousness are glorious promises to God's people. In verse 2, we're told that the wicked will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. The affliction of God's people will not last forever. More than that, God's people will be given the desires of their heart. There in verse 4, do you see that? Now, this is not a promise for you to get every fleshly whim and wish. It's not a promise that you'll get the promotion or the bonus or that car or that house or that relationship. Again, this is not a promise that you will get your every fleshly whim and wish. The righteous do not have the same desires as the wicked. The wicked fill up on the possessions and the prosperity of the world, but the righteous, we fill up on pleasure in God. The first part of verse 4 speaks about delighting in God, and the second half of verse 4 is a parallel and answering idea. If you give yourself to delighting in God with all your heart, He will give you Himself. Is there any greater gift? And I promise you that God's affection will make up for all of your affliction. The promises of these verses are that your affliction will be limited, that God's love will be limitless, and that God will bring forth your righteousness as the light. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that God is going to act. He is going to vindicate His people. The world may tell you that you are wrong, that you're even on the wrong side of history. But in the end... And at the end of history, God will show the world that your righteousness is right. It will be plain as day and public to all. To use the words of the old catechism, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed both in soul and body in the full enjoyment of God. To all eternity. This is why David says to afflicted believers in verses 7 and 9, wait patiently for the Lord. For the evildoers shall be cut off. God promises to act, and his promises to act are not in doubt or in question. No, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Do you see the parallel shalls there in verse 9? Evildoers shall be cut off, and the elect shall be brought home. So wait in faith, and you shall receive your eternal reward. Beloved, if you see and experience the rage of the world, rest from revenge. Don't fret. Your God will not fail. That's the first thing that David says to us in this psalm. Rest from revenge. Now, the second thing that David says to us in this psalm is found in verses 10 to 24. And here David says, remember the end. David has actually previewed this in the first nine verses of the psalm. But now he's going to pound this truth home. He's going to nail it over and over and over again. And in fact, in verse 9, it's actually kind of a hinge verse. So it swings up to summarize what he's just said, and it swings down to summarize what comes after. So in verses 10 to 24, over and over again, David is restating the thrust of verse 9. David's saying, remember the end. See if you agree. Follow along as I read Psalm 37. I'll read verse 9. 224. Verse 9 to 24. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. 
in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pasture. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. The contrasting ends of the righteous And the wicked run right through these verses. The wicked are put down while the righteous are upheld. And it is the sovereign Lord who secures these ends. David not only describes these ends, but he urges the righteous to live in light of these ends today. This happens not by chance, but by divine control of history. In verse 2, David said that the wicked would fade away. David, he repeats that idea in verse 10. In 20, in those verses he says, the, the wicked will be no more, the wicked will perish and vanish like smoke. Too often we believe that the wicked are weighty, that they have a kind of staying power. They're not going to be moved from their positions of power. But this is not true. In due time, as our psalm says, in just a little while, David says there in verse 10, they will be gone. Yes, they may be powerful and effective for a moment, for a a limited span of time, but the Lord will vanquish them and cause them to vanish. Think of the wicked rulers of the earth throughout history. What do they all have in common? The Lord puts them down in death. From Pharaoh to Nero to Hitler to Stalin to Pol Pot to Hussein, name whatever wicked ruler you want to name. They are put down or they will be brought down by The Lord. Even where the wicked are present and plotting against the righteous. What's the attitude of God? Did you see that there in verses 12 and 13? The Lord, he laughs at the wicked. For he sees that his day is coming. The Lord is not unsettled by the wicked. And if the Lord is not unsettled by the wicked, you shouldn't be either. He's in control. He knows that their day of judgment is near. And the language that we see here is similar to what we find actually in Psalm 2, where the psalm specifically focuses in on the Messiah. There we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, do you remember what the psalmist says next in Psalm 2? He says that the Lord 
will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. I will tell of my decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Our Lord will judge the wicked. Indeed, our Lord may even use the wicked's own weapons of war against them. I mean, did you see that in verses 14 and 15? Especially verse 15. Their sword shall enter their own heart. Now, just remember who's writing this psalm right up at the top. It's from David. David, he had to flee from Saul until the day of Saul's death. And do you remember how Saul died? Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. We may not know how or when the Lord will judge the wicked, but he will judge the wicked. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul preached in Acts chapter 17? In Acts 17, 31, the Apostle Paul proclaimed that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance. He's given us assurance that judgment is coming by raising Jesus from the dead. The day of judgment is fixed. The standard of judgment is righteousness. The man of judgment, Jesus, has been appointed. Assurance of judgment has been given by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. There is no alteration, of course, from that coming judgment now. As Thomas Watson once said, He who had a purple robe put upon him in derision shall come in his judge's robes. He who hung upon the cross shall sit upon the bench. On the last day, the wicked shall be put down and the righteous shall be held up. David, he drives this point home in a number of ways. Having declared that the wicked will disappear from the land there in verse 10, by way of contrast in verse 11, David declares, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. I don't know about you, but this sounds so much like the promises of the Lord Jesus and the Beatitudes. Doesn't it? Keep your eye on verse 11. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Do you hear what our Savior is saying? Jesus is saying to you, dear Christian, you may lose all that this world has to offer, but in the end, I promise you that you will receive your inheritance of the whole earth. That is what you are promised in Jesus Christ. And Christian, do you know why you will receive that inheritance? Because you have been adopted into the family of God. And because God is generous and he gives his children gifts from the riches of his grace, from the unending riches of his grace, you will receive your eternal reward. Christian, you will be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You will participate in the unending reign of the whole earth with the Savior. God's people are not just given a small plot of land in Palestine, but the whole earth. And no one can take that from you. When the sovereign Lord has promised to give it to you, you will receive your eternal reward. Reward. 
Similarly, verse 17 speaks about how the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. God will keep his children safe to the end. But David, he also strikes a note of realism in this psalm when he speaks about upholding the righteous. There in verses 23 and 24, it picks this up. Especially when David says that though the righteous may fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. And here, I think that David is speaking about the sin that the righteous sometimes commit. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are righteous not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And still, you live in this fallen world and you're still battling the flesh and so you're going to sin from time to time. As a friend of mine says, sinner's going to sin. We're, we're going to fall in sin. And yet, sometimes we're, we're going to get burned up inside and it's going to spill out. And, and, and when we become angry and we forget our final destiny in Jesus and we sin, we should repent and return to the Lord. But because we belong to the Lord, And because he's gracious to us, and because Jesus paid it all, we will not endure the end that the wicked do. Instead, we will be upheld by God's righteous, omnipotent hand. The righteous are not promised an escape from all evil, but we are promised that the Lord will uphold us amid evil. God puts the wicked down, and he holds the righteous up. And still, this should shape our lives in the present. And David peppers these verses with exhortations on living in light of this end. How should you live under affliction and the Lord's affection? You should be content with your lot, confident of God's care, and generous with your resources. Verse 16 speaks to a present experience. Better is the little, David says, that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Why is the little that you have better than the abundance that the wicked has. Because your father knows best. One of the reasons you shouldn't be envious of evildoers is because such envy is actually an act of judgment on God. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if you envy the arrogant, you're declaring that what God has given you is not good or best. Envy is a backhanded accusation against God. And you don't want to make any kind of accusation against God. So living in light of the end now means not worrying about what others have that you don't have. Comparison, as it's often been said, comparison is the thief of joy. Living in light of the end now means giving thanks for what God has given you and trusting that your portion from the Lord's hand is perfect for you. It is precisely what you need. God's providence is varied. Uh, It's different for everyone. The abundance of the wicked is no indication of God's favor upon them. Don't mistake that. The abundance and the prosperity of the wicked is no indication of God's favor upon them. In fact, it might be part of his judgment upon them. God might be giving the wicked over to their passions and their possessions. After all, consider the words of 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil... It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Your lack of immense wealth might just be God's love for you. He might be sparing you. Be content with your lot and be confident of God's care. As you live in light of the end, you need to remember that the Lord is watching over your ways and your days. Did you see that in verse 18? Look at verse 18 19. 
The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. Our God is caring for us in every season of life. That he knows our days means that he's lovingly watching over each one of us. He doesn't take his eye off you for one minute. Your forever inheritance is never in jeopardy. Though the days are depraved and difficult, he watches over his people. What is it the old hymn says? Be still, my soul. The Lord is on my side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, my best, my heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. His love will not let you go. You will receive your reward. Living in light of the end, it also means being charitable with your resources. I'm not telling you this because we had Giving Tuesday last week, but because it's right there in verses 21 and 22. There's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The wicked borrows but does not pay. But the righteous is generous and gives. The wicked is living as though this world is all there is. And so he has to take and take and take from it. But the righteous man is generous and gives. Not only because he is reflecting the generous and giving character of God, but also because he knows he will receive more than what he gives away. In fact, these verses may be building on that challenge of the the famine there in verses 18 and 19. In times of scarcity, we're hesitant to give, but even here, the righteous trust God's gracious provision. God seems to miraculously provide for his people in times of scarcity and shows that he's able to provide as they keep giving in charity. And do you see the end of verse 22? In the end, the righteous shall inherit the land, but those cursed by God shall be cut off. Grace makes you a giver because you know that in Jesus Christ you've received more than you could ever give away. Living in light of the end means being content with your lot, confident of God's care, and generous with your resources. Oh, beloved, don't be envious of the wicked. You not only have a better life than the wicked now, after all, you live under the glorious love of God. They do not live under such gracious love as you live. But you will also have a better end than the wicked. For you will be welcomed into God's glorious world of love. You will receive your reward. Romans 8.17 tells us that if we suffer with Christ, we will be glorified with Christ. Titus 3.7 reminds us that being justified by His grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Matthew 25 verse 34 announces that on the last day, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Revelation 21.7 declares, The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Christian, rest from revenge. And remember the end, for you will receive your reward. Now, in the next portion of the psalm, something remarkable happens. David gets really personal. It's as if he leans in and says, I want you to learn from my experience. 
Let me tell you about what I've seen in this life. And I find this portion of the psalm really compelling. And and I think that we need to receive the wisdom of this wise man here. And so as we consider our third point, receive receive wisdom from the wise, follow along as I read verses 25 to 38. Verses 25 to 38. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake us saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Now, in these verses, David is really recycling everything that he's actually already said in the psalm. But from a personal perspective, did you pick that up? The the personal pronoun I emerges in verse 25, 35, and 36. In the previous verses, David has declared that the, the righteous and the wicked, they live two different ways and they meet two different ends. But now David steps in to say, I have seen these truths play out with my own eyes. I have seen the Lord watch over the way of the righteous and bring the way of the wicked to an end. Here David reassures those angry and agitated by evildoers, those tempted to respond in revenge, that God does not forsake the righteous, verse 25, that the Lord will not forsake his saints, verse 28, the Lord will not abandon him to his power, verse 33. Let's be really clear about what David is saying here. David is not saying, I have seen the righteous and they're free from trouble. David is not saying that. No, David is saying, I have seen the righteous live a life full of trouble and the Lord has never forsaken them. In the depths of their affliction, God has graciously provided for his people and was present with his people. That's what David has seen. David has seen God provide for them when food was scarce, verse 25. David has seen God rescue his people from false accusation and fierce foes, verses 32 and 33. David has watched the righteous live with integrity amid the anger of the wicked. David has seen the righteous man give generously and raise his children to be godly, verse 25. David has seen the righteous man speak wisdom and justice, verse 30. David has seen the righteous man love the law and walk in the way of the Lord, verse 34. That's what David has seen. But David is also saying something through disclosing his own personal perspective. David's actually giving a personal encouragement by telling you what he's experienced and seen. 
David's saying, beloved, by the grace of God, it can be done. You can live faithfully in this unfaithful world because of your faithful God. You can do it by his grace. Remember, it is God who upholds the righteous. It is God who gives strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. It is God who gives us the grace to do all that he calls us to do in whatever season, and whatever challenge, whatever suffering, whatever affliction we're in. Take it on the word of a man who has been there before. Take it on David's word. David has not only seen this, David has lived this song. David lived it when he was afflicted by Saul and Absalom and Shammai. And David, he lived the tale to tell the tale in his old age. That's why David's personal encouragement in verse 34 is for the righteous to wait for the Lord, to trust God's promises and to remember the end. And, and look at what verses, look at verses 37 and 38. Look at the parallel use of the, the word future in those verses. The people of God have a future, but in the future, those cursed of God will be cut off. God's people have future peace. God's enemies have a future punishment. This perspective that sees beyond the present counsels us to rest from revenge and remember the end. There is something wonderfully beneficial from hearing the wisdom of someone who has gone before. And the young need the wisdom of the old. Proverbs 16.31 tells us, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Yes, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth. And to my chronologically mature brothers and sisters, I say unto you, let no one despise you for your age. For gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Older saints, don't hide your gray hair and don't hide your wisdom. Brothers and sisters, you who are older, you need to share your biblical and life wisdom with those who are younger. And look, if some youth saddles up next to you and says, you're older than me, uh, can you tell me about living faithfully for Jesus for the next 50 years and, and maybe you're not even 50 years old yet? Just say yes. And then do what David does. Do exactly what David does. Tell them about how you have seen the faithfulness of your God in your life and that he can be trusted in pressures, in perplexities, and in the pleasures of this life. Tell them that in order for their gray hair to be a crown of glory, they're going to need to gain it through a righteous life. Through living the long road of loving Jesus in public and in private, day after day. That means that they're going to have to be on their knees in prayer and in the word daily. Just as there is no shortcut to success, there is no shortcut to sanctification. There is no shortcut to a gray head being a crown of glory. And young people, that is worth aspiring to. Because living a righteous life, in doing that, you are living for the glory of the righteous Savior. Beloved, whether you are young or old, 
Receive this wisdom from the wise man, David. Receive this wisdom now. For your death and your destiny will disclose whether or not you are wise or a fool. You realize that, right? Your death and your destiny thereafter will disclose whether or not you were wise or you were a fool. And the choice is before you. Which is why you need to hear David's final exhortation. Run to the Lord for refuge. That's the conclusion of the psalm and the answer to the difficult dilemma that God's people face. Follow along as I read verses 39 and 40. Verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. These verses, they summarize the whole of the psalm and they bring it to a fitting conclusion. Most importantly, they squarely focus our attention on the Lord. Throughout much of the psalm, David has been giving his attention to the righteous and to the wicked, the ways in which they live, the ends in which they meet. He's been telling us that they're each going to receive their reward. He said, that's the truth. I've seen it with my own eyes. And here, David, he sets our sights on the sovereign Lord. What you need most when the passing prosperity of the wicked begins to fill your view and actually burn you up inside is a glimpse of the greatness and glory of of God. So David tells us that salvation is from the Lord, that the Lord is a stronghold and safety, that the Lord helps and delivers and saves his people from the wicked, that the Lord is our refuge. Beloved, I told you that David lived this psalm, but didn't the Lord Jesus live this psalm for us too? I mean, didn't Jesus trust in his heavenly Father as he was surrounded and hounded by the wicked all throughout his life? Didn't our Lord Jesus do good in healing the sick and caring for so many, dealing generously with those around him? Didn't the Lord Jesus give when food was scarce, only five loaves and two fish and so many people, and he gave so generously? Didn't the wicked plot against our Lord Jesus? Didn't they gnash their teeth at him, mock him, even as he hung on the cross? In fact, didn't the wicked take up the sword of the cross. Use it as an instrument of death against Jesus. And yet, didn't the cross become the undoing of evil as Jesus put death to death? And didn't our Lord Jesus commit his way to the Father? Even in the last moments of his life, Father saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. And didn't the Lord Jesus receive his reward? Did the father abandon him to the grave? No. The father delivered him and raised Jesus from the grave on the third day. And did not Jesus ascend to the throne to reign in glory? Has he not and is he not now receiving his reward? The love and worship of his people. Beloved, in the words of verse 37, mark the blameless Jesus. Behold the upright Jesus. Having paved the way of trusting the Father, he has become the source of eternal salvation for all who take refuge in him. So friend, I have to ask you, how will you respond to this psalm? 
Have you run to the Lord Jesus for refuge? Have you sought him for salvation? You need to recognize that this psalm has presented only two kinds of people. The righteous and the wicked. Those who receive Jesus and those who reject Jesus. This psalm has presented only two ends. Eternal peace or eternal punishment. What will be your reward? Will you be rewarded for working in sin and refusing to submit to the sovereign God? Or will you be rewarded with a gracious and glorious inheritance because you have run to the Lord Jesus for refuge? Friend, you do not have to keep on rebelling against God. You can lay the weapons of war down. You can say, God, I deserve to face your eternal, unending wrath in hell. And so I cast myself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid for the punishment for all of my sins on the cross and was raised from the grave to prove to me that he is indeed the Savior whom I can take refuge in. Friend, would you turn from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today? You can be received into his glorious kingdom. He is ready to receive rebels into his glorious kingdom. Come to him in repentance and faith today. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. I want us to think about how our faith continues to work itself out as we conclude. We began by asking how we should live in an upside-down world where the wicked succeed and the righteous suffer. Now, if you, if you remember, I quoted from the third verse of the Christmas carol, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Here's that third verse again. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then the carol, like Psalm 34, 37, takes a marvelous turn in verse 4. Hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Beloved, our God is on his throne. And he will bring all his own all the way home. So rest from revenge and take refuge in the Lord. For in due time, you will receive your reward. Let's give thanks to God for that in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive, ruling and reigning. We give you thanks that the defeat of evil and the wicked is sure. The Lord Jesus' death and resurrection has proven that to us. We will receive glory because Jesus has been glorified. Father, we pray and ask that you'd help us to live with faith this day and always for the glory of Christ's name. Amen.